Good morning, church family. <clears throat> Thanks, bro. <clears throat> well, the last couple of times I preached, we look at we looked at cultivating a servant's heart. Our primary text was Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And then we looked at David, and we looked at what repentance that leads to life looked like. We, we explored his great sin with Bathsheba, and last week, Pastor Jamie shared about how trust changes everything, and he looked at the life of Abraham. And so this morning, I want to tie all these things together, and here's the observation that I want us to make. To cultivate a servant's heart, to learn true repentance that leads to life, and to live a life trusting in God, all these things find their basis, their grounding in humility. They are the characteristics of a disciple who understands humility. And so if I would have begun this morning by asking the question, who desires God's grace, I suspect every one of us would have eagerly raised both hands, right? Because we all want the grace of God in our lives, but when the path to obtaining grace is set before us, how many will travel that path? And so the title of the message this morning is Humility and Grace. And we're going to look at what humility looks like in our lives. And so, Father, we're here to meet with you, God. We're here to be changed by your power, your presence, your spirit, your word. And so, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear spirits to receive. Lord, do what only you can do. Open hearts and minds. Have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. So our prayer is that each of us leave the church service with a heart like Jesus, with a heart more after the things that he would have us pursue, that we pray for godly wisdom in situations, we pray for godly discernment in situations, but we also pray that in an increasing measure that we begin to see people and love people the way Jesus does. Because it's easy to grow cynical, it's easy to become judgmental, it's easy to have that real religious side in the worst sense of the word creep up, isn't it? And so many of you know I'm still in school. I'll probably always be in school for the rest of my life. I'm one of those weird people that have always liked school. And so it's amazing to me how very specifically my studies have informed the season of ministry. And I've shared with Jamie and Sam countless times about you know this book or this article or this paper and, and how it literally God's using it to speak to us right now. And so I'm reading a book, the first book for this class I just began, and the name of it is Humility, the Beauty of Holiness. And believe it or not, my initial thought when I read that title was, well, maybe this one's not going to speak so specifically to me right now. And then like before that thought could get out, the low is like, whoa, killer. And maybe, maybe it is, right? Like, because it's easy to not see ourselves as like overtly prideful. But then I read like the first paragraph and I was like immediately wrecked. And so I'm going to read you this section. We're going to start with that. It's not ever that a man says or even thinks, stand by, I am holier than thou. No, indeed, the thought would be regarded with abhorrence. But there grows up, all unconsciously, a hidden habit of soul, which feels complacency in its attainments and cannot help but see how far it is in advance of others. 
They can be recognized not always in any special self-assertion or self-laudation, but simply in the absence of that deep self-abasement, which cannot but be the mark of the soul that has seen the glory of God. It reveals itself not only in words or thoughts, but in a tone and a way of speaking to others in which those who have the gift of spiritual discernment cannot but recognize the power of self. Even the world with its keen eye notices and points to it as proof that the profession of a heavenly life does not bear any, spe- any specially heavenly fruit. Oh, brethren, let us be aware, unless we make with each advance in what we think holiness, the increase of humility our study, we may find that we have been delighting in beautiful thoughts and feelings, in solemn acts of consecration and of faith, while the only sure mark of the presence of God, namely the disappearance of self, was all the time wanting. And then he closes and says, come and let us flee to Jesus. Let us hide ourselves in him until we be clothed upon with his humility. That alone is holiness. I read that the, the, the true way to determine counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. The Pharisees, we've said before, didn't have the wrong theology. What they thought about God wasn't wrong. It's just they thought holiness was, was sort of this, you know, this pompous, this ritual, this, this external change without an internal heart renewed and in love with God. And so counterfeit holiness, the way you can always tell is by the lack of humility. See, all of the Christian life can be summed up in John 3.30. He must increase We must decrease more Jesus, less me. And so we all say we want to be like Jesus, but do we clothe ourselves in humility? Do we seek, in fact, to have our very lives disappear into his? It's why Paul, after his discussion in Galatians 5 of the the things of the flesh, the workings of the flesh, and then the fruit of the Spirit, he closes that section and he says this, after he talks about what the fruit of the Spirit is and what that should look like in our lives, he says in the ending of chapter 5, let's not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Because Paul rightly notes in his own self and in ourselves and and the human condition that the minute we start to see spiritual fruit, we use that to judge others who have less fruit or who we perceive to have less fruit. See, church, we are really good at pointing out the sins in others. We are really good. If I asked you to list your sins to your spouse, some of you would go on and on and on, right? And then if I ask you to limit, list your own sins, it, you know, it might take a little longer than if I asked your spouse, then we'd get that big list, right? See, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, says, likewise, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And, and, and you know, we like to isolate that. So if we're parents or grandparents, we say, see, see what the Bible says? But it doesn't stop there. In fact, the thought continues. And it says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That doesn't negate the fact that we are to submit ourselves to our elders. But there's a bigger theme 
Are we living our lives in submission to one another? Are we living our lives in consideration of others? For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a quote of Proverbs 3.34. So we all started by saying we want God's grace. Well, God gives grace to the humble, and he resists. He actively opposes the proud. That ought to cause us pause, church. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humility, that elusive trait that the moment you think you have it, that shows that you don't, right? Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician, said this. The man who knows God but does not know his own misery becomes proud. If you're not aware of your own condition, if you know who God is, if you know the things of God, but you don't know who you are in light of who God is, you become proud. The man who knows God but does not know his own misery becomes proud. The man who knows his own misery but does not know God ends in despair. In other words, if all you do is look at your failures and your past and your struggles and you don't know who God is, you'll be in despair. So I'm going to start from the beginning. The man who knows God but does not know his own misery becomes proud. The man who knows his own misery but does not know God ends in despair. But the knowledge of Jesus Christ constitutes the middle course because in him we find both God and our own misery. Jesus Christ is therefore a God whom we approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Look at a man like the Apostle Paul to see how through his life as a ransomed and holy man, the deep consciousness of having been a sinner lives inextinguishably. We all know the passages in which he refers to his life as a persecutor. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I labored more abundantly than all of them, but not I, but the grace of God with me. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, was this grace given so I could preach the gospel. I was a blasphemer, and injurious, but I obtained mercy. Ignorantly in unbelief, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. See, God's grace had saved him. God remembered his sins no more. Paul understood justification. Paul understood theology, but Paul also recognized that the power of the cross was that it did what he could never do. The power of the cross, the Lamb of God, took away the sins of the world. And so Paul was always aware of who he was in his past and who he was in the present. One, when he wrote, I I continue to do the things I don't want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. What is this, this tension that lives in me? So yes, Paul recognized the grace of God and the presence and power of God in his life and that was made all the more powerful by God, by Paul's realization of who he was in the flesh, of his heart being deceitfully wicked as the Bible describes it. 
So there's this, there's this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life that we've talked about. And then there's a worldly sorrow, this mopey sorrow that leads to death that the enemy uses to keep us in our past. You're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. We look at everybody else. But godly sorrow, a recognition of who we are before a holy and perfect and just God and a desire to be like him, a desire to receive his grace and mercy. That's godly repentance. See, the more Paul rejoiced in God's salvation, the more his experience of God's grace filled him with a joy unspeakable. But at the same time, the more clear his conscience that he was a saved sinner and that salvation had no meaning or sweetness except as the sense of being a sinner made precious and real to him. In other words, Paul recognized his need of a savior. We've, we've said before, we've said it this way, that the, the good news is only good news if you know the bad news. The bad news is that we are sinners. The good news is that we have a savior to pay the price. If you have no concept of who you are and of your sin, then the good news doesn't seem to be good news. If you don't think you need a savior, or like, you know, at one point in my life, I knew I needed a savior. I needed someone to save me. I was drowning. I was dying. I was dead. I was the walking dead. There was nothing. I didn't have the energy to live. And so the idea of Jesus as my savior, come save me. I need saving. The Lord part, I don't know. I'll let you know about that part. I still want to be my Lord. I just want him to be my savior, right? Because somehow in the church, we have this notion that we can pursue the American dream and we can kind of add Jesus for eternal life. I want to still be my own king. I want to still be my own God because all of sin has its root in pride. All of disobedience has its root in pride. Well, Lord, I know this is what you say, but there's an asterisk, there's an exception in my life. I know better than you in this situation. It's disobedience. It's pride. It's saying, I want to be God. It's the sin in the garden. It's the root of all sin. It's the root of why people abuse other people, because they're looking not to the interests of others, but to their own interests. Humility, this is my favorite definition. It's just from the dictionary. It's freedom from pride or arrogance. And I love that definition because it means the opposite of humility is pride and arrogance, but the notion of freedom from, it means it's something we're enslaved to. Prideful and arrogant, the idea that we're just so self-focused that it's all about us, that idea is enslaving to us. And here I will submit to you this truth. If you live your life Simply for the pursuit of your own agenda, you will live entirely and wholly unfulfilled and you'll have missed out on what it means to really live. See, the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to take up our cross. And people stop there. I've heard people say that. Particularly when somebody's struggling, they'll say, well, you know, take up your cross and follow Jesus That is an invitation to death, but it's also take up your cross and follow Jesus to resurrection. It's an invitation to death that leads to life. It's what we do in baptism when we identify with Christ's death and our death to self, and then we come up on the water with a new birth and a new life. 
And so it's not just take up your cross and that's it. It's he's going to help you carry your cross for his purposes in your life. So the opposite of humility is pride and arrogance. And these things are not just undesirable. They're in fact opposed to God. And so if that's a description of you, God is actively opposed to you. That's why Jesus, when he was on earth, the people who he railed against were the religious people. They were the Pharisees. They were the people that knew that they had the right theology. Their theology was better than the other people. And what did it produce in them? Hardened hearts, manipulative spirits, the opposite of humility. People talk to me all the time, you know, when, when I say I'm a pastor, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I don't, Christians, I don't like Christians. Uh, um, Gandhi famously said, I would have been a Christian had I not known so many. I like your Christ, it's your Christians I don't like. Why? Why do people say that? You ask them. You say, well, describe a Christian, and then they'll describe arrogant and hypocrisy, and somebody thinks they're better than everybody else. And I'll say, you know, at my church, we don't follow Christians. We follow Jesus. Let's talk about him. And see, people don't have a problem with Jesus. They don't have a problem with the way he lived. They have a problem with the way we live. And look, sometimes people are just negative and, you know, but sometimes we own it. Sometimes I own it. And so rather than argue against that, we ought to be humble. We ought to listen. Because too often I think we show people a pharisaical spirit than a spirit of humility and gentleness. See, we've seen from the Garden of Eden until now the destruction caused by pride, by a refusal to submit to God and seek to become instead our own gods. And today again, we see, look around, the destruction of prominent people, but not just prominent people, in our own lives, in our own hearts, the destruction in relationships and everything else caused by our own pride. We started a few weeks ago in the life of David, but there is hope. I have a, a sweatshirt that I wear, and in the back of it, it says Hope Dealer in big white letters. And I was having dinner the other day. I was meeting somebody at, at 99, and, and the waitress tapped me on the shoulder, and she was like, you know, when I first saw that sweatshirt, she's like, I was thinking, what? She's like, but then, you know, now I, I saw her. I said, yeah, I have a friend who used to say I used to be a hopeless dope fiend, and now I'm a dopeless hope fiend. And I said, so I'm a hope dealer. I'm a pastor. I know hope in Jesus. About three or four days later, I was wearing the same sweatshirt, getting my hair cut, and I sat, I walked in the place, I signed in, I sat down, and the guy on the side of me said, what do I got to do to get a bag of hope? And I said, well, I'll tell you, but you might not like it. And I said, I'm a pastor, you can come to church. That's the only hope. And he said, well, I'll tell you, the world really needs it. Amen. And what that means is he recognized that he really needed it. And you might be here, and you might recognize that you really need it. That you, that you desire more than anything the grace and mercy of God. And so we're going to bring us to a place of, well, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to let the, our pride get in the way? Or are we going to humble ourselves and receive the grace and mercy of God? See, our only hope is in Christ. And cr pride is the most serious, the most subtle of sins. And it's often not even recognized as, as, as existing 
We, we see all the big external sins. We have lists of sins. We have lists of things that we tolerate and things that we push out. If that's your sin, you can't even come to church, right? And then we ignore the whole time our own prideful hearts. All rebellion has pride behind it. All disobedience has pride as its root. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So our main text this morning is going to be Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1 through 18. I'll give you a minute. You can turn there. And we're going to, we're going to read scripture through the systematic lens of Paul. It was a common way to look at Scripture throughout the Middle, Middle Ages, from Augustine to Luther. There was a sense of reading Scripture with this lens, of taking the, the things that Paul focuses on primarily, of faith, of love, and of hope. And we read the text and we ask not just what it says, but we look what it asks us to believe, that's faith. What it asks us to do, that's love. And what it asks us to anticipate, that's hope comes from Paul's focus throughout his writing on those three things. Paul wrote to the Philippians, likely from prison, probably in Rome, about 62 AD. The church at Philippi was the first church that Paul formed. It was the first church in Europe. And Paul formed that church, and now he's in jail. He's looking at a rough situation, the end of his life, the end of his ministry. Those are things in his view. And what does he do? Say, well, you know, I'm going to pout. You know, my situation, this is, this is, I'm going to write a letter asking for prayers and help. No, he says, you know what, I'm going to take this time to encourage the church that I planted because they're facing their own struggle. Because Augustus Caesar had conquered, it was a military conquest, and now the Romans were in control. And so Paul's going to write and say, despite what's going on around you, Despite the unfair leaders you have, you're called to live as the people of God. And I want to encourage you in that. See, we're not called to be the church and to be the kingdom of God on earth just when things align perfectly, just when it's easy. We're called to do that in the midst of everything, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficulty. He's showing them Jesus is the supreme example of this way of life. And he's showing that himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus, that they're also along those same lines. So he's saying, follow us as we follow Jesus. We look to him as the supreme example of life as a humble servant. Paul writes in second, in Philippians chapter two. And he begins with this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from his love, if there is any participation in the spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, those are questions and those are indicators. Paul's going, look, I want to ask you this, CFC. I want to ask you this, Brian. Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any comfort from his love? Are you participating in the spirit? Are you in relationship in the church? 
Do you have affection and sympathy? Do you have a real concern for what your brothers and sisters are facing beyond lip service, beyond, okay, I'll pray for you. No, but I'm hungry. I'll pray for you. No, but I need a coat. I'll pray for you. Let me write you on the prayer list because I'm kind of busy this week and I've already given my check and Paul's going, look, do these things describe this, this, this body? I had, uh, the other night, I, I was asked to come and, and, and speak to the youth group. Then they had questions. And the most intimidating crowd in the world to me is a bunch of teenagers. I'm just saying. I, I can say 5,000 people, I, I doesn't even, it's like I'm talking to two people. But teenagers, I'm like, I don't know how to talk to them. Like, I was, I was nervous. I'm like, and then, you know, they're like, oh, they're just going to throw questions at you. <laughs> okay. And so I started, I said this, I said, and it was great, I loved it, but I said, look, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and answer your questions, but I want you to know that facts about somebody, although they're true facts, and answers to questions, although they're sufficient answers, do not substitute for a relationship, for falling in love. I can tell you a whole bunch of things about somebody I love, and that might make them more appealing to you, but that doesn't mean you'll fall in love with them. And primarily what God wants for us is that we fall in love with him. And the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in our lives as we fall deeper in love with him, more dependent on his grace and his mercy. So do we know our identity in Christ? Are we encouraged by that? Are we we aware? Do we understand the love of God? Does that comfort us? Are we participating in the spirit? And do these things produce real affection, real compassion, real sympathy, real concern in others? See, in computers, you have if-then statements. If this is true, then this is the result. And if, the, if, the, if they call it garbage in, garbage out. Dave knows that. I just saw Dave, right? Developer, right? If you put garbage in, doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are, garbage is going to come out. If-then. If this, then that. And so Paul's saying, if these things describe you as a community, then, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, the same as Jesus, and being in full accord and of one mind. We preached months ago, in John 17, when Jesus prays, he doesn't pray that every single one of us agree about every single thing all the time, but he prays that the church is united. Why? For the cause of the gospel. He prays that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. That our goal, and that only happens if we're humble, if not, we're, we're just like the world with competing preferences. I love when people tell me they don't believe in God and they make ethical reasons why they don't believe in God with no grounding. If there is no God, we're left with competing preferences. That is all we have. My view versus your view versus the next guy's view, and we're all going to fight. But as the church, we're called to live differently. We're called to consider others before we consider ourselves. And so Paul says, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit. I don't know what your translation says. I don't know if it says do some things, but my translation says do nothing. There's no asterisk. There's no fine print. There's no, there's no exit from that statement. Paul's saying There's nothing in your life that the motive of it should be your own ambition 
as the primary motivator. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he proposes an alternative. It's revolutionary. It's counterintuitive. It's against everything you've ever known. But it's the truest thing in the world. And deep down in our heart, we know it. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What would our churches look like? What would our relationships look like if we believed that for a minute? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so after Paul admonishes us to behave this way, he's going to ground it. This isn't just Paul's opinion. He's going to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, Jesus was fully divine, but he emptied himself. He became human. That means he was limited. He couldn't be in multiple places at one time. He had to eat. He had to rest. He was limited by being human. And he submitted himself through his life to the will of the Father. He got strengthened by the Father. He got his direction from the Father. His relationship with the Father was the source for everything he did. And we somehow think we don't need that. Don't you think that was the model that Jesus not not only showed us, but it was the reality of his essence, of his power, that it was in relation, perfect relation, perfect submission, perfect response to the Father? And being found in human form, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's going, after I admonish you, after I encourage you, after I instruct you toward humility, let let me remind you, the one we profess to follow, the one who we're supposed to emulate, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, which was known to be not only the most painful, but the most humiliating way to die. It was reserved for the lowest of low, for common criminals. It wasn't even talked about because it was embarrassing. And our God subjected himself to that. And so Paul's going, just in case you struggle with humility, consider him who is perfect and blameless, and died for your sin and my sin. See, it's convicting. Sometimes we we don't like feeling bad. We think that anytime you feel bad, that that's a bad thing. But you know what? Discomfort is the impetus for change. Most of the time we change because we're made uncomfortable by something. Conviction is okay, as long as it motivates us to say, not, that's why Paul had to say to the Galatians, what begun in the spirit, are you now kind of try to continue in the flesh? So we're all here and we go, I know, I give my life to Jesus, I trust in Jesus, it's all him, and now I'm going to do it all on my own. And then we get discouraged, because we can't do it. And then we look at other people and they seem to be doing it. But they're not doing it either, they're submitting themselves to Christ, and he's doing it. See, what's in the way of fruit, of increasing measure being made manifest in our lives is us, most of the time. We can blame our friends and our spouse and our church and our pastor. We can blame the world and our boss, and we can blame the devil, but most of the time, it's us. It's our own pride. 
Anyone here ever humble themselves anywhere close to death on a cross? See, I've heard, and people have said, and in, in God's grace and in God's strength, you know, who knows? But people, you know, would you die for Jesus? I would die for my faith. It's like you can't even die for five seconds for somebody else. You can't even put your own preferences down for a minute. Our priorities are all messed up. We can take time, you know, 10 hours a week to binge watch a Netflix show, and I'm guilty. There's some good stuff out there. You ask somebody to write, read their Bible for an hour before a community group, it's like, well, I had a busy week. I mean, I've been binge-watched. Yeah, listen, I get it. I'm not, I'm not throwing any stones here. I'm just saying, we make time for what's important in our lives. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So now Paul says, look, if these things describe your community, I'm calling you to be humble. And I'm calling you to be humble like Jesus was humble. And then he says this, and the title in my Bible, it says, do everything without grumbling. I'm grumbling about that title. Like, it's like, all right, it's, it's one thing to try and do it, but now I can't complain about it? Come on. I was, the other, the other I, I have a cold thing. I can't, I can't, you know, I haven't been able to sleep. So uh, I was at church the time I was with the youth group. I got here at 6 a.m. It was still dark out. Six o'clock, I pulled in. So I'm like tired, and I'm like beat up, you know, and I'm doing the thing with the kids, and I loved it. It was great, and I left. It was like 9 o'clock. I text Gary White. I know he has. I'm like, 15-hour day. I feel like him. You know, it's like part-time work for him. Guys here all the time, right? But I was grumbling a little bit. I mean, I was doing it, but I wanted everyone to know, you know how tired I am? I've been here for 15 hours. I'm exhausted. I can't, you know, a little bit. Of, and I thought, hey, I'm doing it. I should, right? I get to, right, Jamie? I get to complain. I'm here. Therefore, my dear friends, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. People stop there, too. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as if, like, we get to do it. But see, Paul, even though the source of all his letters, Paul's writing is all pastoral in nature. And, and good theology is. He's writing to encourage believers. But he doesn't stop there. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul's going, yeah, work it out. That really means comply, submit, cooperate. Stop getting in the way of what God wants to do in your life because he'll do it. You know what our job is? Believe. The Bible says it all the time. You know what we're called to do? Believe. What does that mean? Believe. The faith, noun, verb, trust. Believe means an action. It means actually believe the stuff and live it out. Faith, love, hope. What do we think? What do we do? And what do we anticipate? What do we look forward to? It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purpose. That means I might have desires, I might have things I want, and maybe some of those things God will give me, and others he won't, but you know what? He'll give me his presence, his power, and his peace. God says in this world, you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. 
It's his glory. It's his power. It's his purposes. And we, we submit as long as it lines up with our agenda. And that's not what it means to walk more him, less me. And then verse 14 And I wish it said do some things or do most things, but it says do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And listen, listen to this verse. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Paul's going, I know everything around you is falling apart. I know everybody around you is falling apart. I know the world system. I know it all. But I'm telling you to stand firm, to continue to do what you're called to do, to hold on to that word of life. I love that. The Bible that that gives life, that's living and active. Hold on to that. And what's going to happen? People are going to see that, and you're going to shine like the stars. See, we think, well, We're going to be the church as long as it's in peacetime and as long as the economy's good and as long as people in our family are getting along. And Paul's going, no, 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 church. We're called to shine like the stars despite what's happening around us because of who we have inside us. Verse 17, but even as I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I will rejoice with all of you so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul's not just saying, do what I do. Paul's not just talking the talk. Paul's in jail. This is Paul's pity potty time. And Paul, could he's like the best Christian. Like, if, if there was a super Christian, it would be Paul. He says, it. look, if, if anyone can boast, I, I should be able to boast. Got all the right pedigree. Everything was going right for Paul. You'd think at this point, Paul would be like, you know what, God? I was faithful. I did everything right. Look at this. I'm in jail. Could write and just say, you know what? And he does. Ask for prayer. But you know what? Just pray for me, guys. This is a tough time. It's about me. It's about me. I'm in jail. My situation's in front of me. And Paul goes, no, I'm in jail. That means my time on earth is limited. That means it's all the more important I do what God called me to do while I'm here. I've got who, who said, every time I preach, I preach as if I'm a dying man preaching to dying men. Paul knew that truth. And so what does Paul do with his last little bit of time? He encourages the body of Christ. We said a few weeks ago that Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if you know what I know. He said, blessed are you if you do what I do. A.W. Toza said, it is not what a man does that determines whether or not his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. God is after our heart. Motive is everything. I was at a district meeting the other day with Pastor Jamie and Pastor Sam. And, uh, and one of the things that was said was, how is it as pastors, we read Jesus' invitation, come to you, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How is it as pastors, we read that as for everybody else and not us? I was like wrecked by that. Like somewhere along the line, that Jesus' invitation, it doesn't count for me. Of course it does. counts for every one of us. Paul knew that. 
See, in the New Testament, the word yoke is used to denote servitude. We must submit to Jesus in order to learn from him. And we must learn from him in order to be humble. And then we must become humble like him if we want to be the recipients of the grace of God. Humility is the start of it all. It's the foundation of all Christian virtues is saying, I surrender my life to him and I'm dependent on him for everything. See, a few weeks ago, we said that that Thursday that Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. He knew he had, a, he had 24 hours to live. If, you, if I told you right now you had a day to live, what would you do? I know immediately we think like bucket list stuff, right? I mean, if there's ever an excuse to be selfish, it's that, right? You know, Jesus did say, I know I talked to these guys. I know, I know that I was an example. I know that I lived with them. The, the scripture there, it says, Jesus, having loved them to the end, loved them still. I love that expression. Like, these are these guys, and Jesus just looked at them, and he knew he had 24 hours to live, but he was motivated by their love for them. See, in us, in, in Jesus, love is what motivated his humility, his love for us is what motivated him to be humble. In us, it's the opposite. When we humble ourselves before God, only then can we begin to love. And so Jesus looks and he's like, I, this is the last supper. This is the last meal with these guys. I know one's going to deny me and one's going to betray me, but you know what? I'm going to love on him because I love him. It reminds me of a story, I've shared it with some of you before, and it's profoundly beautiful, and it's profoundly sad sort of at the same time. My dad, when he was dying of cancer, he knew he didn't have much time left. And my sister tells the story of how he walked around at, at my parents' house, knew in my, knowing my mother, there was only something she was going to be able to do, and knowing how, you know, how you know my sister's on point with some of that and he walked around with a checklist of things this is how you close the pool and this is how you do this and and this is you know the way to take care of that and if this happens this is who to call and I thought like you know a little bit of time left on earth and his thought was I want to make sure everyone's okay when I'm not here I want to make sure that they're taken care of and it's such a beautiful lesson what a legacy that we were concerned even when sort of everybody in the world says you can be selfish at that moment. You only have so much time left. Live for you. And let the Bible and what Jesus and what Paul did is said, you only have so much time left. And you know what? We're all dying. I went to the doctor the other day. I came back and I said, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is I'm dying. The good news is hopefully it'll take 40 years. I was being a little optimistic with that. <laughs> But you know what? We only have so much time on earth. And you know what we get to do at that time? We get to serve him. I heard it said, who among you have called to save souls would lower your position to that of a king or a general? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. See, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Paul said, look, I'm not saying to you that I got it figured out. I'm not saying look at me as the example. He's saying, but I press on to take hold of that which Jesus Christ took hold of me. 
Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's calling in Christ Jesus. Paul's going, I'm not going to keep looking back there. I know what's back there. But with God's help and with the community, you know, I was sharing with somebody the other day, that my whole life I've been surrounded by people much better than me. They make me look good. People say, oh, Pastor Brian, you know, you, you get recovery and all, you know, you came through and you do all this stuff and it's God's grace. It's God's grace working through a whole bunch of people. My wife's like my better five-eighths. She's not my better half. Seven-eighths, Seven thank you. <laughs> See, keeps me humble. Fruit testing. But I, I recognize how I've been surrounded by amazing people that God's placed in my life. And you know what? If you haven't been, let's be that to somebody else. Let's be the church that says, hey, brother, you need to get to Jesus, and I know you can't walk, so here's some friends, and we're going to pick up where you're at, and we're going to bring you to Jesus because that's where you need to get. See, I want it to be said about us that we shine among them like the stars in the sky. That when people look at this church, they say, man, they are salt and light. Man, they love radically. I'm gonna close with one last quote from the book. Why don't we stand? We shut the lights, thank you. It says this, and listen says, the blessings of the higher Christian life are often like the objects exposed in a, shop, in a shop window. We can see them clearly, but we cannot reach them. If told to stretch out our hand and take, we would say, I can't, because there's a pane of glass between me and them. And even so, as Christians, we may clearly see the blessed promises of perfect peace and of rest of overflowing love and joy, of abiding communion and fruitfulness. And yet we feel that there is something between us hindering that true possession. And what might that be? I say to you, it is nothing but your pride. So church, do not be hindered by your pride this morning. The altars are open. And the altars, it's not a show for everybody else. There's something about a public submission, about saying, I'm going to do business with God where I am or up front. I don't care who knows. And wouldn't it be cool if all the seats were empty and the altars were full as we submit ourselves to God, as we in humility ask to receive his grace and mercy because he meets us there with love and with forgiveness. And that changes everything, church. In Jesus' name.